RDT Systems, baby. Dog tested and dog tough. We've got those soft mouth dummies. Now listen, everybody knows that we need more bumpers. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire. I like using white or black and white bumpers when I'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds. You can get the orange ones. I dig it. But add a bunch to your repertoire. And I'm again, I'm not talking about three to six. If you're working on T pattern, if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds, you need a bunch, a dozen, 18. The Soft Mouth Dummies by DT can't be beat. Check them out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. DT Difference. Let's go. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course, bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles, baby! We got another episode for you. Obviously, you know that because you're listening, but we got another great episode. I've got a buddy on the line that I'm really excited to chat with, BS with, laugh with, and have his training expertise shared with you. Now, the funny part is, if you Google him, you may find a country music star. You also apparently might find a serial killer, but I promise you that is not him. But first, let's check in with our sponsors. Big old thank you to the Yukonuba Baby, the food that fuels us. We're building champions, and we got to fuel them up. The food we feed our dogs depends on the dog. So our young dogs are all getting the puppy formula, okay? So 0 to 24 months on average, that's what they say. So like old Quinn girl, she's getting that puppy. Now Kevin's dogs, um, they train here and there. They hike here and there, but they are a little bit more sedentary than our working dogs. They're getting the adult food. So if you're the guy or gal that's training two or three days a week for half hour here and there, and then you hunt pretty hard, but you're just not grinding, Adult formula is probably for you. Then for us who are, are grinding, we're doing the 30-20 blend, the sporting dog blend. So check them out. Yukonuba, baby. Ah, next up, Gunner Kennels, man's best kennel. There's a lot we can say about these guys. One of the things I like, and we've touched on in other podcasts, is their orthopedic dog bed. As you know, old buck, he is... Almost 11 and a half. Almost 11. No, he's almost 11. He's 10 and a half. I'm doing the math in my head. We all know on the podcast I suck at math. 10 and a half. He's getting up there in age. He aches. He, he's got some pains. 
and that orthopedic dog bed. I just feel good about it, man. You know, first off, he's bouncing around a little bit in the bed of the truck, and let's cushion him. And, and whether he's old or not, I think this bed, as long as your dog isn't a chewer, I'm a big fan of this bed. If you got a six-month-old puppy, I think you probably need their performance pad. But if you got that dog that, you know, is three years old, mature, and isn't a chewer, this bed is going to help cushion the ride. And let's be honest, you got him in that gunner kennel. You're you're already slick. You're above, above, all right? So get that gunner kennel, baby. Next up, Dogtra. We've been repping Dogtra for over 10 years now. Big fan of the products and, in my opinion, most importantly, their customer service. So if you were that one guy who has a a, a collar that's batteries dying or you bust your antenna because your dog chewed it, Gunner, or Gunner, Dogtra, baby, their customer service is fantastic. So check out Dogtra. Uh, Traeger Grills. Smoke them if you got them, baby. Kevin and I, I got this new Traeger. It's the Ranger. It's the small camping, back of the truck, going to a hunt test grill. I am enjoying it. I'm smoking them. It's all good in the Traeger hood, baby. And lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This is the group of folks that help our analytics. So when we were number 30 in Canada, apparently we dropped. So I don't know if Canada liked to hear that they were America's top hat or what, but we dropped off a little in, in Canada's rankings. But guess what? These guys also have a lot of great podcasts and social media people that you would be interested in in the outdoor world. Check out Waypoint Outdoor Collective. All right, as I alluded to a few moments ago, he is not a country music singer. He is from Kentucky, and he is definitely not a serial killer. So if you Google my man, Jimmy Rogers, you will find... Also, you will find those two things, but you will also find a fantastic dog trainer and friend and hunt test competitor and all around dog man. So I'd like to welcome Jimmy Rogers from Mallard Run Kennels. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Do me a favor. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Jimmy Rogers. I'm from Campbellsville, Kentucky. Uh, dog trainer full time. I do uh, hunt tests. I've got uh, uh, been in full time since about 2008. Uh, prior to that, about five or six years part time, and then I duck hunted um, as a uh, as a professional duck hunter for about 20 years, roughly. Uh, managed a couple duck lodges and guided duck hunt. So you're from Kentucky. Where did you guide? Uh, started off in Mississippi. Uh, Charleston, Mississippi, worked there for a few years, and then I finished up my career in uh, Morrow, Arkansas. Okay, cool. So yep. to give everybody a little bit more background on Jimmy, Jimmy travels the country running hunt tests, um, and I frequent the Ohio circuit, and so does Jimmy. He's, he spends part of his summer up there, and so we run in, into each other all the time in Ohio, and I've, I mean, we've hit it off, become buddies. He's a hell of a storyteller and funny guy. Um, Jimmy, how did you, 
how did you get started into the dog training world? Give everybody that backstory. Yes, sir. Uh, well, when uh, we started, me and my wife bought a puppy and back in the late 90s and just uh, enjoyed uh, duck hunting and dove hunting here in Kentucky and started training it, wanted to learn more about it. Uh, the guy I bought the puppy from had run some hunt tests. I got to talking to him and uh, I bought a really nice puppy, one of those deals. The dog was way better than I was. It made me look good once I started running a few tests with it and uh, it just kind of growed into a passion. I, I enjoyed it and never had it. Uh, you know, thought about doing it full time, uh, started taking a few dogs on just because guys locals want their dog trained kind of like mine. And I enjoyed doing it so much. I was a sales rep for building materials. So in the evenings, I would come home and mess with, uh, you know, five or six dogs and really enjoyed it. And then uh, in 2008, during the building crash, uh, when everything kind of went down, my job as a, as a salesman kind of went away. Just there wasn't nothing to do because everything kind of died out. So I just started taking on more dogs. And uh, uh, I learned from a guy, once I started running, really running hunt tests and building crews of dogs, I learned from a guy down in uh, Louisville, Mississippi named Ronnie Lee. That was my mentor. I went down and spent quite a bit of time with him, and he was nice enough to really take me through all the steps and learn how to how to do what we do. Gotcha. So yeah. before that, this whole time you were – a duck guide as well? Because you said that was like 18 years. Now, I'm not great at math, and I think everybody on the podcast knows that. So I'm trying to go back from 2020 to, yeah, so probably 10 years prior to this, you you were guiding. That, that's right. Uh, so I had, uh, like I said, I was in the building industry. So in this part of the country, uh, starting March, April, May through October, very busy. You know, a lot of stuff going on in our winter's everything kind of slows down. I duck hunted a lot. And one of those deals, instead of paying for duck hunting, got in with a few guys down in Southern Illinois, started doing a little guiding over there, just doing weekends, part-time stuff. Met some guys out of Mississippi on a youth hunt. Uh, went down there, they had a new, built a new lodge, was looking for a guide, started doing, you know, long weekends, go down on a Wednesday, guide uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, come home, work two or three days and go back. Done that for a few years until it kind of just built into a full-time, deal you know and then uh <clears throat> lodge down there was looking for a, a manager on a pri on a private lodge so i took uh took that position through the winter and then a partner and i started our own guide service there in mississippi and done that for a few years what was that guide service called that you guys partnered in yeah that was called uh uh, Del uh southern delta did you guys yeah. come up with that on your own or just because you were from the south and near the delta yeah. just one and one two and two Yep, me, me and my partner just, just, you know, one of those things, we got to name it and uh, picked it, and that's how we've done that. We only done it for probably, uh, I think it was like two seasons, maybe three. It's been a few years ago, so two or three seasons we've done it. Uh, and then at that point, uh, that's when the 08 deal hit, and uh, I was looking to go into the hunting industry, moving out of, say, you know, the building industry, and a job opportunity opened up in Monroe, Arkansas. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At that at that point, I went to work for a company called Big Creek Ducks and Bucks, and I was with them the last, uh, you know, up until a couple of years ago. I was with them about ten years. Gotcha, gotcha. So, yep. I want to learn a little bit more about the first dog that you had, the one that you said in the '90s you got with your wife that was, you know, better than you imagined, and and started the passion. What was that dog's name? And and tell us the ride that that dog took you on. 
Oh, yes. The, uh, a guy named Ty Clinney, he was a local guy here. Uh, my wife's uh, mom had worked with uh, his wife at the school system, and they had bread labs. And uh, <clears throat> I was looking for a, for a nice lab, you know, something bread nice. I was willing to pay for it. And back then, I think I paid like $1,000 for a puppy. And people looked at me like I'd lost my mind. You know, that's back when, when a uh, really nice bred dog, six or $700 would have been high. Uh, he was bred out of uh, uh, Eva's Ebony and Ivory, some of the old, real old uh, field trial stock, uh, Honest Abe, you know. Uh, and he, he was just a ball of fire. I mean, he was so enthusiastic. Uh, I read the book, of course, like everybody in the world, that trains dogs, I'm sure, has read Water Dogs, you know, to yeah. start off with, that, especially from my era. And then uh, I got into it and then just started researching more. Uh, a book that probably helped me more than anything that really built that dog was uh, Retriever Training by Tritronics, was, uh, was really instrumental in, in training, that, training that dog, you know, teaching it to handle. And I had seen it. Uh, a neighbor of mine, when I was a kid, had a uh, boy and spaniel who had been professionally trained and would run a blind. And it had always intrigued me. So I was one of the dogs that could do that. That's really so I cool. took the dog through every step and, and just went on, I, I, you know, we made I I didn't run HRC back then. I just run, uh, I just run, uh, uh, AKC and I took him through his senior title. And, uh, then I just, at that point in life, I just didn't have time to run a lot. I never did go on and make his master title, never even tried a master test, but <clears throat> he, uh, he guided with me through virtually all of the places I worked through. He even, through my last job at Big Creek, he was one of the first dogs I took there. And by that time, he was getting some age on him, but he was seasoned. He had, you know, he had picked up a, a ton of ducks, you know, from Southern Illinois down to Mississippi and then on into Arkansas with me. He was with me for the whole ride. He made a couple trips to Canada with me. He, uh, it was, it was pretty nice. He got to hunt a lot of places with me. And I really enjoyed it. That's really cool. That's really yes. cool. So. An, another little caveat, and then we'll dive back into the gun dog retriever world. Uh, but you are also a setter aficionado. I, I am. I, I own my first setter. I, I I grew up. My dad always had bird dogs. He was a uh, Llewellyn setter guy. Oh, uh, I like the English pointers. Is what I had. Uh, I've had several of them over the years. I competed with the UFTA just for a short stint. Run a couple of nationals. Uh, I had a dog named Bam who lived to be 17 years old. I lost him a year before last. And uh, he's one of those out of all the dogs I had between Ty, which was the first lab, and then Bam. Uh, those were those were my two dogs that kind of built my career. And Bam was uh, I'm one of those that's just he, – he like I tell people, he, he wasn't probably worth anything, but I wouldn't take nothing for him. He was just the best bird dog I ever had. He, he really done a nice job, guided with him. Uh, a lot of the guide jobs, so, you know, at, at uh, all the places I work, we've done duck hunting in the morning. We do, you know, upland hunting in the evening. And that's how I got most of those jobs was by being able to have a, a dog uh, that could, you know, hunt in the evening also. Because, you know, at this time, there's not a lot of people who do that. And then uh, uh, here just, a, well, I, I guess it's two years old, I got my first setter. And his name's Dodger. We're, we're working him now. I didn't hunt him this past season. We were just training on him, and then we've got him going good. He'll be ready for this season. As a two-year-old, he's going to be really nice. I really like him. He's cool. He's got a great attitude. He's fun. But my first setter, I'm really, I'm really enjoying him. That's cool. Kevin and yes. I, Kevin and I both have English setters, and uh, 
they're different. You know, it's just a when you're running retrievers all day long to take a break and and let the the setters or you know I guess I'd train a couple other pointing dogs, but you know to let them run and just walk the field with them or walk the woods with them. It is a different brain training brain side of your brain. Absolutely. And I enjoy, I enjoy that part. Just like you said, the difference when I'm running bird dog trials, I would only do it for myself. I don't do that for clients. I do it for fun, you know, just because I enjoy the dog so much. It's no pressure, win or lose, you know, pass or fail on the bird dogs. I just enjoy doing it. And I, and I really enjoy watching a good bird dog that's well trained do his work. That's probably my favorite thing. I've always said for years, if, uh, if Kentucky would have kept their quill population like it was when I was a kid, I probably would have never met any of you guys because I'd be in the quill dogs. You know, I enjoyed that really more uh, than I did the retrievers or, you know, the duck hunting. But then once I started duck hunting and got into the retrievers, it just took way over. You know, I just never got that opportunity if uh, if the birds would have stayed here like, like they were when I was young. That's cool, man. That's really cool. Yeah, we enjoy it. We do grouse and woodcock hunting. Um, and then our state releases pheasants. And so we'll take them out on some pheasant hunts. But truthfully, personally, I like hunting pheasants over a flushing dog um, versus the pointers because, you know, again, they're pen raised. So they generally aren't running. Um, they're, they're just a different animal. And so you're not running huge land. And uh, the grouse and woodcock for me are, are what I really enjoy. And I have been lucky enough in South Carolina to run my setter Andy on quail, wild coveys of quail, and then, you know, pen-raised quail. But there's just nothing beats it. And, again, it, it turns that side of our brain off and on to just being a dog guy. Yes, sir. Yeah, they uh, – uh... The quail, the quail hunting, like I said, I mean, to watch a, a dog go slam point on a wild covey of quail, I, I kind of hate it for, a, a, you know, this generation hasn't experienced it like the generations past have, and it's just so much fun. I mean, it, we I hunted uh, uh, grouse over in eastern Kentucky. We don't have those here. Uh, and then pheasants, I, I'm with you. I, there's nothing more fun than a good uh, lab work in a pheasant, you know, really quartering a field and, and you know, pushing one up and sitting on the flush. One of my favorite things to do is I judge. I just started here a couple of years ago judging HRC, and I've, uh, I'm through. I, I'm a double-A season judge and judge finished, but I really like judging up. That, that's my favorite. I was like, man, you don't mind walking all day? I'm like, heck no, man. To watch those dogs, and the good ones especially, really go in and work hard on pushing a pheasant up. It just, if you haven't experienced that, it's something you really need to see. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree yes. more. So let's maybe take a little deep dive into the HRC world because I I've done it, but I'm not I'm not uh, as well versed in it as you are. So what about because you do both HRC and AKC? Tell everybody right. a little bit. You know, I, we've had other podcasts where we have kind of explained the differences and and but I, I want to hear from you in your perspective on the differences and pros and cons of each? I, I like, as far as preferred uh, running, I still enjoy running master tests. I like the challenge of it. Uh, I like training the dogs to that level. I still get a lot of excitement out of it. But HRC for the hunter, uh, you know, the guy, especially the amateur, 
trainer is is such a, a great you know dog event because you have so many you know, the the way the levels uh, move up from started through season and finished and then you know if you have a dog that can go on and run the grand <clears throat> it's just you can watch the dog you know go through those uh, I like it because it's so close to hunting you know AKC. Uh, a lot of tests, you know, they're hunting. I mean, that's we're training hunting dogs, and the master hunter obviously is fantastic in the field, also. But the HRC with that dog tracking the gun, you know, not getting the calls in the field, uh, you know, sitting attentively and watching bird, looking for birds out there, not you know, not waiting for something to go off. Uh, I enjoy that part. The the test anymore, they've gotten close together. You know, the challenge of the test <clears throat> versus like and a master are way closer together now than when I started. When I, you know, when I first started, the finish tests were a little more open spread. There wasn't any concepts. You know, you had a left, middle, right bird and a blind between either the left and right bird and the middle bird. Uh, these days, <clears throat> you, you know, your dog to run a finish test needs to be trained to, to understand, you know, how to do a lot of concept type work. Uh, you know, blinds are much tighter. Uh, and the dogs have just gotten so much better at it, you know, because people are training to that level. So I, I like I like both, you know. And like I said, I judge an HRC. I would judge AKC. It's just hard for me to get free where I hunt all winter. That's when a lot of the handler seminars are, and I just don't have a chance to do it, you know, to get to go do a handler sem- or a uh, judge a seminar. And the uh, and with HRC with the upland side of it, I really like that. I don't get a judge it a bunch, but usually a couple of times a year, I, I like that portion of the time. So. Uh, HRC for the hunter and the guy at home training his own dog, maybe training with a pro or whatever, can can really watch his dog, you know, move up through the ranks on that. That's really cool. So I've never ran an upland in HRC before. What is that all about? Are there different <clears throat> levels, like started, season, finished, or is it just one level? They got a quarter field flush and sit to the flush. Yeah, it's a, it's one level. So most of the time, uh, the dogs that I'll run in it, have already either ready for finished or have done completed their finished. You need a lot of control on your dog uh, because the dog ha- <clears throat> has to quarter. You have to do a walk up, which, you know, you're walking out and bird comes out of your shoulder and shoot the bird with the popper. You'll have a, you have to honor a dog doing a portion of the test. So you need a dog to sit steady and honor. You'll be released into the field. Your dog has to quarter, uh, engage the bird and the dog has to flush. And once the bird is flushed, you've got to be able to set the dog, shoot the bird, and the dog remains sitting uh, while the you know bird is shot. But they'll have gunners in the field that will actually engage and kill the bird. And then once the bird's on the ground, you release the dog to go retrieve the bird to hand. And you'll do that twice. So, like, once you leave, you'll, you may do a walk-up, go out quarter, flush this bird. You'll make a turn, come in, flush, and shoot your next bird. And then you may move on to the honor from there. That's the a lot of times I kind of run it in a circle for time, you know, where you'll get your two flushes in and then back, get your honor, and then you'll be done. How do you, how do you get your honor? So, uh, the honor is you, you usually, you're just honoring the walk up. Um. So as the guy, you know, you'll move back in and sit and watch the dog that's coming out to, to become the working dog. They'll have a designated spot for you. <clears throat> you'll, you'll, bring your dog in and sit the, as he walks out into the field you'll get a walk-in bird you know where the bird uh, you know a dead bird is thrown out and the dog has to sit on the you know as the bird comes out they'll shoot 
once that dog's released and got the bird, the judge that's with the owner dog will release you in your belt. Gotcha. Very cool. I was going to say it would be up the ante on them if you were two dogs mm-hmm. working a field like pointing dogs where they'd have to like back the other one. It flushes. They both sit, send the working dog, and you'd have to honor. That'd be freaking nuts. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. That, I've never seen that. I don't think – every time – all the, the honor has always been done on the walk-up, even at the Grand. You know, the fifth series of the Grand is a uh, upland series. That it's only one flush. You only have to flush one bird at the Grand. <clears throat> on a weekend test, it's two flush, two flushes. And uh, what they'll do at the Grand most of the time – and so, some weekend tests do that. Both guys are walking out, you know, like walking into the field, and both of you will shoot the bird. And the working dog goes get the bird, and the honor dog will sit. Oh, so they and do do that up, at the grand. They do do that at the grand. You have to honor a walk up. Oh yeah, the yeah, grand's yeah. no joke, man. Have you ran no, the grand? I have. I've run several of them over the years. I've had uh, I've had some successes and failures at the grand. It is not the easiest thing in the world. I enjoy it. Uh, there was a time I was thinking I wasn't enjoying it, but uh, I go and. Uh, I push my dogs hard to be at that level. I really, I enjoy the atmosphere of the grand. You know, when you sign up for it, it's not going to be easy. Uh, and it's a, it's a challenge. I mean, it's a, it's to me, it's kind of the ultimate feeling is when you can, when you can get that dog through, uh, especially that upland series, man, it'll really, it'll really, even somebody like us who runs, you know, 20 plus weekends a year. I do, you know, I've run 20 plus weekends a year and, uh, and I don't have a lot of, you know, nerves in it anymore, you know, from masters to finish test or whatever. But now when you get in that fifth series of that grand and you've got to get that dog to set on one flush to make the, you know, make you uh, pass for his title, it, uh, it'll get pretty exciting pretty quick. Sure. Yeah. So I'd like to take a second and explain the grand and the master national, or mm-hmm. as we like to call it, the master stational, because last year I had my beautiful voluptuous mustache i seen that the other weekend as fantastic nice i appreciate that thank you for noticing <laughs> yes, sir. if you put a little milk on it and a cat licked it it might come off but it's a good stash that's right, that's right. you put a lot of work into it i see i try i try yeah yes. so both the grand and master national are the most elite you can run in the hunt test game from from our world right so there yeah there are field trials but for a hunt tester in hrc that would be the grand in akc and you've got a master hunter the master national would be the creme de la creme as a guy i've never ran the grand so i've never been i understand the rules and what the dog needs it to be capable of and then i've heard a bunch of our you know, mutual friends and my buddies and whatever that have ran it and just get their teeth kicked in. From your perspective as a guy who's ran both, what's it like, you know, and I always see on like Facebook the argument of a grand dog versus a master national dog. You know, would you want to try and tackle that? Question. Well, man, I, you know, uh, I do. I've run both. I've run a few more grands than I have national. Um, you know, a lot of that's in your client base, the guys that you're training the dogs for, they really want to push. You know, I, most of my dogs are HRCH master hunters, and then that's what those guys want because they're serious hunters. You know, that's just the guys that I've dealt with, and I enjoy that part of it. I, the good ones, 
you know, the guys that's really got elite dogs, you know, I, I'll explain to them about the Grand. I'll explain to them about the National. Uh, the Master National is a game of stay, in my opinion, just from what I've learned, the few I've run, meaning you just can't have what I call a catastrophic breakdown, meaning you got to just try to get the birds. If you got a handle, get your handle and, and stay in play. The Grand, the way it's judged, is – it's just it's just much harder as far as from the uh you just you just can't afford any mistakes right uh meaning you know once once you have a a bobble whatever that would be you know there's things like you got a dog that creeps that's going to cost you uh, a marginal run you get that twice you're out if you creeps and then have to handle on the mark you're out so uh where it's a national you know you have a series where the dog gets a little loose on a shot pheasant fly or something but he goes out there and kills the test no big deal you know uh you can stay and they're gonna let you see what you do on the next series you know you creep three or four series you're out you know or you know you get out of hand they're gonna, they're gonna take you out but the, uh where the judging the way the judging works at the grand in my opinion is what seems to make it the hardest you know and it's because you run the judges that you run under doesn't know what you've done in the previous test. By the time you're to the four series, you've done run three series, and they don't know how those other three series went for you. They don't know if you're on ones or twos the way it's scored. Uh, they're just judging their test to the standard they set from the beginning, and you've got to perform every test to that standard. So uh, if you you know if you stumble coming out of the gate, and, you know the dog gets over, you know gets pumped up on the first day and has to handle, then you run the second, third really clean, really good. And you have to handle in the fourth. It doesn't matter. You're still out. Where at the national, you can handle in the first. You know, do really good two or three series. Handle in the fifth. Maybe you can come back handle in the sixth and still, you know, still make it to the end. So there's some uh, 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 more where you're with the same set of judges at national, and they can kind of calculate as they go. I think makes it a little more. Uh, I'm not going to say easy for sure because those tests are extremely hard. But that's you know. That, that seems to be the dip, the major difference, in my opinion. From a guy who hasn't ran it, but heard you now and a couple other buddies who've ran it, that that is the main difference. Is in the Master National, we have judges that follow us from day one to the end, and they have notes and they have everything on what I did with that dog at that time. And can kind of use discretion to say, now that mark really wasn't that bad. Was it perfect? No, but it wasn't that bad because the last seven marks were dynamite. Where right. at the grand, one of the marks in the first series could be marginal, and now, and to maybe take a second and di- digress, but in the grand, you get a, a two is a perfect score, right? A one That's means you made a mistake. A zero, you're out. That is correct. So if you are what they call on ones, you have to be perfect the rest of the entire grand. If you That's get out, correct. if if in the third series you get another set of ones, you're out. That's correct. And it, it, for the first four series, you're allowed to to go to have a marginal move, and that could be anywhere from. You know, like I say, from creeping or handling on a mark or catastrophes on a blind, you're allowed that one time. And then if it's in the first four series, now once you go to the up one, it's all, we're all back to, you know, zero. And you just got to complete that series. Right. It doesn't carry. So 
yeah, that that's the part that, that seems to make that test. Because some really good dogs, you know, I mean, the dogs that are there are usually very good, you know, and people have trained hard on. And then as you get into those later rounds, uh, you know, just little little things will catch up with you. So you have to have a dog that we, we say the group that I train with, it's not that we really need good luck. It's just you can't afford no bad luck. You know, like a, uh, last year I run in Wisconsin and had a really nice group of dogs. And in the second series, uh, we had a thundershire come through. And twice while my dog was in the field and they had asked me to pick it up, the, the test got shut down due to, due to a thundershire. And it was pouring, you know, sideways rain. And that's, that's just bad luck. You know, the, the dog had the opportunity to go get the birds and just like right as the dog was in the field working, it just got terribly bad, you know, and things like that, things like that happen. Sun hits a certain way, you know, you'll have eight or 10 dogs miss a mark, you know, that just can't get that mark done. And then the sun moves over and boom, they're getting it like it was, you know, it's just laying right there, you know. So things like that sometimes come into play too, a little bit of luck of the draw of time, you know, time of day you run and things like that. Now, can you give me, and I guess, and everybody, a little bit of a rundown of what one of those series would look like? Is it three marks in a blind? Is it? Yep. That, you know. it, it's a grand, that's, that's, now that's one thing. The grand is trained. You can train for it because there are going to be three separated marks. I have to give them very, you know, very good credit on that. They're well placed. Uh, there's going to be three distinct areas of fall, you know, like at, say at the national, like we was comparing where you might have some inline stuff or some really tight marks, you know, and you're trying to keep it off. And, you know, like the main thing this goes is not to get back in the no fall, but the grand, that's, that's usually not the issue. Uh, like I, I can only think of even one time we walked up and run a cold blind at the grand, you know, out of the cert, you know, I've run several grands and, and that's kind of odd. Most of the time uh, at the grand, you're going to, you're going to sell that bucket. You're going to blow your duck call and you're going to get three distinct birds to come out. Now, so they don't wait. Sorry. Uh, and this <clears throat> is Kevin. Um, <clears throat> cause I've never been, but, uh, what is it like? Are they 200 yard marks, 50, 500? Like what is it kind of, what does it kind of yeah. look like? Out to 200 is the max distance at the grand. And, and I can think back over the years, we picked up a bird in, uh, and uh, I know in Alabama at the cattle ranch, I think the last one we run there, we had a bird that was about 186 yards. Had one in Texas City, Texas that was about 175 or something. But it's not really the distance. Uh, we picked up, I, I seen a whole crew of dogs uh, in our first series at a test. The bird was like 35 yards, and you could see it from the line, and all the dogs were overrunning it. And even the judges said, you know, we had two really good marks and we didn't have anything else to do here. So we just kind of throw that bird in there because we figured we had enough of those two marks and everybody was getting the, what, what they, you know, and, and everybody went on and thought, you know, everybody got the marks pretty good. And then when you had to come back and get that check down bird, it created a ton of handles. And I'm going to say, you know, more than half of a flight handled on a 35 or 40 yard bird. Uh, so I think at the grant, it's more bird placement. They really take their time to really set up good tests where those birds fall, where a dog has to go pretty much where the bird fails, or it's going to be hard to get to. Yeah. Jimmy, that, that would be something I would like our listeners to maybe take a second and digress from talking about the grand and master national and talk about training 
and bird placement when you're setting up marks and maybe what you mean by it and factors. And if you can just, it's a really broad brush what I'm asking you to do, but when you're setting up a training scenario, a check down bird, like the definition would be, you know, your other two marks are kind of far out there and then your check down bird is 30 yards. So the other two marks are 150. This bird is 30 yards. So they just got done running 150 yards and they've got to slow down, slow their roll and ease up and find that bird. But when you're talking about bird placement and you're looking at a setup, what kind of things are you looking for to make it? I guess what I, I look for is hard to find, but easy to get to and hard to get to, but easy to find. You know what I mean? That, that No, absolutely. And I, I think that pretty much all of us that do hunt this have that same, uh, a guy I learned a ton from Steve Eric from up in uh, Ohio. Uh, he, he retired and he's actually started back training. He, he had actually taught me that years ago when I first started training. I trained with him several times and, and he lived by that and has, he's had fantastic success at the grand and, and all of his dogs are very good. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, that's what he said, hard to get to, but easy to find or easy to get to, but hard to find. I Meaning, you know, if you got a big clump of cover over here, it's just right there, but throw it in the cover. The dog's got to get in there and dig it out. Or if you're going to run them, you know, 200 yards, which we throw marks that far pretty regular. Yep. When they get there, you know, the bird's just there. They, they they just it's just laying there and open. They don't have to dig it out at two hundred. So you're building success uh, at that, you know. And that, and I think that's the thing. All of us as retriever trainers, we 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 think about, we talk about trying to figure out ways to teach the dog scenarios. Uh, I've run two master tests this year so far. You know, with the COVID uh, situation, we're all way behind and jacked up going into the summer, trying to get these dogs done. And and well, I, I, run, I run a double header and a single test. And all three so far have been a short check down bird. That has been the issue. I run a test in uh, Georgia where they had a shot flyer. Uh, you had a you walked up to a short bird. It was hip pocketed off the short uh, off the long bird, which was the flyer. They shot it, and then the left hand bird. You picked the left hand bird up, come back in. Now you had to make a decision, you know, on these two birds. And and the judge told me eighty. It was a hundred dog masters, say ninety seven or ninety six started it, eighty five or something handled on that scenario. Uh, we try to teach that, you know. I worked on it uh, in Ohio. I don't know how many uh, dogs handled on that short bird. The test with you, you and I just run here last uh, weekend. Sixty uh, out of sixty six handled on that short bird, or, or like those two marks. You know what I mean? So, so, mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that tells, that tells me right there, we, we're not training hard enough on the short check down bird. I, I've been doing that all, all spring and I just haven't got it. it. That's the hardest thing. It's so, you know, when I have a lot of people who come and train with me, you know, as I'm sure a lot of pros do, you know, people are here, you know, at least a couple of days a week when the weather's really nice, three or four days a week, you know, I'll have uh, people training their own dog, clients come and train and, and run their dogs. They, they just don't understand. They think the bird up there at, at, you know, 175 yards is going to be the hard one. And the bird over here at 20, 25 or 30 yards is going to be the easy one. But, you know, you throw that and then you know off and run a blind. You come back in and try to pick up that short bird or go pick the long bird up and then check down. That dog 
you know, blows right through it. And they're like, I'm like, you got to get that short bird out of the way. And it's just, it's just a hard scenario for that dog. All the dogs want to go long. Right. The good ones. They all want to dig. So uh, the other test in, in Georgia was the same scenario. Now it was throwed out a little outside the marks and my dog's got that one good. But when you put those marks tight together, all of mine want to, you know, shoot right past it. Just like I handled all every dog in the first series uh, on both of those tests. Now I got dogs through, you know, uh, once I got, you know, once those scenarios weren't there, but they've done that scenario twice. I'm going to handle in two series, you know, with the crew I've got now. So I'm trying to teach that to come back in and look short. Uh, at, you know, it's, I think it's an issue for a lot of us and something we got to really work on. As far as cover goes here in Kentucky, where I train, uh, I'm blessed with heels. You know, we get people that come in from away from here and man, they love it because they're fighting factors on hillsides stuff that my dogs just naturally do. Uh, if I go down, you know, say in the wintertime and I train in the Delta over in Arkansas, uh, it's uh, those flat marks for mine are a little issue. So I think a lot of it has to do with where you train at, the type of grounds you have. Um, you know, we, we're always trying to find place to hide birds, kind of pick where the dogs don't want to go. I done a deal today uh, where it was, it was a lot of cover, but it was about 60 yards where you hit the cover. And then the bird was back in the cover. That 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 was something a lot of my dogs struggle with today. So I've seen that. So that's something I'm gonna work on. You know, where they're not right up against the cover shooting in, they had to, you know, run through mowed grass and then into a covered patch. You know, things like that. I'm always looking to see how the dogs do today to see what I'm gonna be running in the next couple of weeks to try to help teach that scenario so they'll get better at it. Absolutely. As far as like the mentality that I would have to try and explain to it to people is you know, when you're, we've said this a, a thousand times on this podcast, we want to train like we hunt. So if you hunt out of a pit in Arkansas, you better get your dog in and out of a pit and train. Oh, oh damn. Sorry. That's all Sorry. right. You good? <laughs> you wouldn't like a dog would bark here. This is live. Yeah, exactly. Live action. So, so we, you know, you want to, teach these dogs the the things they're going to see in real life pits ground blinds um mow marshes decoys uh mojos you want to train like you're going to hunt well it's the same idea you're talking about with these hunt tests we've been seeing a lot of check down birds last the master national we just ran every single bird in every single series I ran, there was a breaking bird. I mean, yeah. within 25 yards, splashing in your face, you know, just uh, edge of your seat, not hard to get to, not hard to see, not hard. To, these weren't check down birds like we were just talking about where you got to run far and long and then check down. This is like just hang on tight and sit still because this baby's right here. And yeah. and we all like to train longer. We all like to push these dogs further and faster and and see them do some really cool big things, but then we neglect to throw that live flyer at 50 yards and have it a, a rooster going right in their freaking face. And and you got to have a dog that's going to sit still and honor like that. And so I realized that, yeah, is it badass to have a dog that runs a 250-yard mark 
you know, in and out of water and this way, you know, sideways, yes. But if we want to pass a master national, they better sit still, have the mental capacity to see a long bird, see a short bird, and remain calm. Um, and, and without do, adding high, high levels of pressure, right? Like, I don't want to have no. it be a butt-kicking session because I need them to sit still. I just need to do it a bunch so that it, it takes that excitement to a more manageable level. At least that's how I do it. No, I, I agree. It's just another day at work for them. They see that so right. much that they just know that that's going to be when they get out of the truck. That's what that's what's coming. And, and you know, over the years, those things have gotten. You know, years ago, like when I first started running, we'd go over. You know, back in the nineties, I'd be running my junior dog, like my personal dog, and I'd be happy to pick up two singles. You know, like pickle that and we go and watch the masters, and you know. Most of those dogs, the tests weren't that hard. It was the fact they couldn't get them to sit still. You know, right. they didn't know. People didn't have the knowledge and all the stuff that we have these days. You know, the tools, the the people to help us. You know, there's so many more people involved, you know, where you can go find help and somebody can actually get you through it or, or books or, you know, podcasts or YouTube videos and people are figuring those out. Uh, you know, just to sit still. And then over time, it's evolved so much. Then the blinds got really hard. Well, then we all kind of figured out, you know, as a group, we figured out how to run blinds. You know, you know what the scenario is. So the blinds, your dog's got to be able to perform to be a master hunter. And it's kind of the same, you know, with the uh, with the marks now. You know, like, you know, indented birds used to be like crazy. You know, like, oh, my gosh. You know, it's going to be so hard to get this, you know, an indented bird where they have the two outside birds long and then they got a middle bird in short. And we kind of figured out how to do that. The hip pocket scenario where they throw a bird that would land, you know, short of in line but you know in the same direction of a long bird and then have to come back in and look out at two different hides and try to make the dog understand which bird you're trying to ask him to pick up and and again without all the pressure you want you want them to be able to be free in the field to go out there and, and pick up the birds and, and make and you know make good decisions and think their way through it as they you know as they leave out through there you don't want them leaving with the with the mentality of being scared over it you know they want to be able to Go out there and, and and look for the bird without without like frightening them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I've definitely seen we all we all have seen dogs at these tests where you know that pressure has become too much. It's been too too much on them, and so they get nervous and they they just they're not free. They're not doing it because they're having fun. They're doing it because they have to, and then they can't find it, and they get frantic, and then they peel out and bomb. And I think that there is a balance where we build teamwork. And, yeah, do they have to? Sure. But they want to. They've been conditioned. They've been trained to a level where it's it's almost repetitive and just go pick them up. You know, like in my mind, when I started running master tests, I'd look at the test and I'd be like, Oh my God, we got to do this. Oh my God. Look at that blind. Oh, you know, and I'd be super nervous. I mean, I still am at times knowing each dog and what their pros and cons are. And I still can get nervous for sure. But if you go out every day and, and do your best with your dog and walk into these tests knowing that you're prepared for anything and that it's just like training, go pick up a couple marks and go run a couple blinds, have fun with your friends, 
you're you are going to be a high likely of passing because you are just looking at it as go pick up the birds and run a blind wherever they put them run it it's and and figure it out as it goes oh your dog overran that short bird handle it oh you you don't you don't have a handle because you already did well you better cross your fingers brother you better check (laughs) down you better hope god gives you a, a little bit of wind in the words of my buddy Tyler Patterson, he said, "You better bear down. Yeah, <laughs> you, buddy. Better, you better get it right here because it's your last chance." Uh, yeah, yeah. But- I, I run H- HRC this weekend. I had eight season dogs, and that's like herding chickens. I don't know. If, you oh, know, the season dogs would it, be yeah. They're a you don't know hunter. what's coming. It's the yeah, worst. Oh, yeah, or, yeah, they're actually a little, probably a little below a senior hunter. Their their talents are you know they're usually a little week younger. All these dogs are way under two years old, and and and. Uh, Started them last fall, brought them back in. Was going to run them in spring. Well, I trained on them, and, and they've become really good dogs because you know with COVID, I didn't, I haven't run anything. This was their first time, what I call off the farm. Yeah. And I trained on those dogs so hard. Well, you know, I got them up to season level back, you know, a month and a half ago because that's when it was time to go, and then there was no test. So I didn't stop training. I just kept training. So I've got them passed, but I kind of got them. I don't want to say the word beat up, but they were they weren't having no fun because all we were doing was training. I needed a test this weekend for those dogs. Mm-hmm. Saturday, they, they run good. Passed them all on Saturday. They run nice. You know, they've done their work because of, like they were trained to. On Sundays, those dogs come out, and, man, they look really good. They, they were excited. They yeah. were jacked up. You know, the training stuck, thank God, because a lot of times, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm not training for Saturday morning. I'm training for Sunday afternoon. Right. You know, every you know every dog that I've got can usually get to Saturday morning. I've got the control. I've got everything about by Sunday afternoon in that third series or like in a season test, the fourth series because you know they've run two on Saturday and two on Sunday. I mean, it's the fourth series. That's where the training starts kicking in. You know, you just need it to last for you know one more series. And I needed that bad this weekend to let those dogs come up. And then I run a nice set today uh that was you know a good set of marks and my dogs run better they were happier and it wasn't when i say pressure it wasn't physical it wasn't because i was burning on it, it was just mental because I'd, I'd got harder and harder and harder stuff for them to do because they were doing so well it's the little stuff we just kept getting it harder and, and i noticed in the last couple of weeks prior to the test they were going down so i'd started shortening up i'd done more singles running more blinds that they could do you know easier to do things that had seen you know scenarios they'd seen before so I, I needed a test. That, that's what I say about the, that crew was they needed a test to come back up. And it helped them a ton. You know, now they run again this weekend down in Nashville. So I'm hoping, you know, uh, I can keep them on that high and get them down there and keep the control with it right. and, and run another good weekend. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I have two dogs right now that are – above the senior level on a good day below the senior level on a bad day and i you know i sold one of my dogs uh this is going to break some hearts here on the chronicles but i sold brew and he's uh you know jimmy i'll give you a little heads up i i had my litter about a year and a half ago super nice dog i kept a yellow male named him brew you know lone ducks one more drink best name in the world and yep. uh, a family in Illinois bought him, and he's going to finish training until duck season. And he's he is bad to the bone. I mean, there's no joke. He's he's a nice, talented dog. Like, 
and the owner, not, new owner, you know, he's never even met the dog, so he's been asking a lot of videos and and pictures and whatever. So I'm like, dude, sure. I, the setup we got today, it, it's very big. I can't even video it because it'd be a 20 minute video. Do you want to FaceTime me? So now I'm on live. I can't even cut and paste. Oh. I can't even be like, delete that one. Delete it. <laughs> delete it. Don't send that one. That's right. We we live, baby. So yeah, that's pressure right there, man. That's that's like uh, now that now you're starting to feel that fifth year of the grand kicking in at that point because oh, you gotta yeah. you gotta perform now. And I yep. the setup we had was for the big dogs. It was it was huge. It was a uh, probably. 200 yard marks run down the hill different change of cover across a road angle into a swim by pond cross the swim by pond into another patch of cover find your bird cool stomped it right he, he didn't cheat the water he hammered it i'm like so i turn around i'm like yeah man you know blah 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 he's doing great <laughs> now our swim by ponds are are next to each other okay so you can actually hit them as a channel blind with a re-entry Mm-hmm. You picking up what I'm putting down? I do, yes, sir. All right. So next is a different, the, the other swim by pond, angle entry across all that cover, um, boom, hits it, hammers it. So with the bigger dogs, we were knowing them off those marks, running a blind, cutting the other corners of the swim by ponds, blah, 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 and then picking up the marks. For him, I was just running the marks, and then I was going to run the blinds. Now, again, he hasn't even ran a senior test. And I'm setting up way way above his pay grade. So he picks up all these marks beautiful. And I ran the first blind, and I should have just stopped. You know? <laughs> like, I should have well. just stopped because he freaking hammered that one too. Like, a little bobble, a little slow, slipping a whistle on a set, whatever. But hammered it. I'm like, damn, this dog's good. I'm going to do the hard blind now. Holy crap, did he implode. <laughs> <laughs> and all that live, I, yes. Oh yeah, yes, live I, action. I, I, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Yes, live. Yeah. So you know, obviously he's cool and he understands. You know when, get him, when you need him most. Yeah. So we had some really good corrections, and it would have honestly yeah. been good for people to see on like Instagram or Facebook or something where you know this isn't the beautiful part. This is where. Okay, Brew, you don't want to sit on this whistle? You're going to get it. Okay, Brew, you're not taking a back cast? You're going to get it. Then I'm going to move up and simplify. I'm going to, you know, distance from me erodes control. So I'd start walking towards him, sit, good dog, cast, you know. And so I'm live action with this dude on (laughs) FaceTime. (laughs) And we got through it, though. I mean, it wasn't pretty, trust me. But I got the dog through it. And he, he succeeded. I have no idea where I was going with the story, but long story short, <laughs> oh, you were talking about your seasoned dogs where they needed simplification and yep. having fun, right? So this is the same idea. Yep. Like, he's there, he's not there, he's there, he's not there. Probably for another day or two, I need to ease back and build his confidence back up. Um, but, yeah, they're at that level. They're they're the in-betweeners. They're not yep. junior dogs. And they're not master dogs, but they're better than the average Joe. But I think that leads to coaching, right? Like, because you're trying to guide the dog toward the next level. And so you might have to push the envelope a little bit and 
create opportunities where he is going to not fail, but like flounder a little bit so that you can create corrections and create better positive conditioning. Right. Or no, that's right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, we're all trying to peak at the right time, especially when during test season, you know, that, you know, we train and hunt dogs. That's, that's my goal in life is to train the best hunt dog I can possibly train for the dog they send. But when they want to run hunt tests, we want to pass those tests. So you kind of have two different, uh, scenarios as far as, you know, what you're training for each day, the hunting, like you said, you know, using the pits, the Momar stands, the decoys, all that absolutely is important. Uh, but when it's time to run, you know, my normal summer, I would be, you know, uh, running, I think, uh, between the Ohio test, Michigan, coming up there running at, uh, in, uh, in, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, I run like eight out of nine weekends. And to keep a crew peaked that high, you know, I've developed a way over the years to try to, to, to peak that crew, you know, where I can keep them on that high for 10 weeks in a row. And that's probably been the hardest thing I have learned to do because I get them all done at once. You know, like, you know, I've got anywhere from six to 14 master dogs I'm running and I'm trying to keep them all ready to go the next weekend. So, you know, they have a Bible this weekend. I got to let that go, get them out on Monday, get them ready, build them back up for the next coming weekend and get them ready to run again. And that, that to me, and that, it, just like in just everyday training too, with that crew of season dogs, I had to get them built back up because I've been running stuff that was above their pay grade, just like what you was talking about. You know, that some days they would go down there and do a big re-entry blind, you know, off the water, hit the water good, cut the corner, do all that. The next day they look out and they're like, they'd never even seen anything like that. Right. You know, and then the owner's here watching. <laughs> You're like, well, <laughs> let me move down here closer and try it again. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do other than just keep going, you know, walk, you know, step it off, get down there closer to them, simplify it and, Say, well, he's done good, you know, the last few days that is the same today. Yeah. And that's part of a, especially dogs under two years old, you know, until they get up at, you know, uh, past, you know, 24, 26 months old, man, you just, you never know what they're capable of, you know, just like any direction at any time when nothing would surprise me. Exactly. You go left, they go right, and you don't know coming or going, baby. (laughs) That's right. And, over the years, I've tried to build on momentum more, you know, without with less correction, you know, get allowing them to make mistakes and showing them where they made mistakes uh, instead of, you know, so much just constant pounding on them with the collar or, or, or hollering at them. No, you know, bring them back in a lot more attrition training and things like that to try to keep from hitting that low, you know, keep them on that high as long as you can moving through the training. Absolutely. All right, Jimmy. Yep. Let's caveat this conversation into what we like to call shot for shot. Now, back in college, I bet me and you could go and and knew what we were talking about with shot for shot. But now as dog trainers, we're going to simplify and just answer questions that came through our Instagram feed. Um, Kevin's got a couple of them written down. And these, I feel like, are good questions that come through kind of often and so i'll let kevin ask you the first one and then we'll kind of just if there's little uh, subtle differences that we have or i'd like to add something or you'd like to add something to what i've got you know but it helps people who listen um get their dogs better man so kevin why don't you 
Why don't you rock the first shot for shot, man? Sure. So uh, this one is from uh, Chris Designer on Instagram. Uh, and he asked, how long do you wait to feed your dog after exercise? And then also, do you increase food during duck season? All right. So I feed here, I feed once a day uh, in the evening after everything else is done. So usually by the time I come in, I like to let my dogs cool down before feeding. I don't know exactly the amount of exact time that is, but I don't want them panting hard. You know, like I have fans on my truck. So a normal day we come in out of the field, I come to the kennel, I park my truck, I plug my fans in on my truck, let everybody cool down. I'm going to say roughly, you know, 25 to 30 minutes. Let them chill out a little bit, and then I feed on the truck and air off the truck and then into the kennel. That's the way I do it. Uh, during duck season, as hard as we run these dogs through the summer, I'm going to say according to how hard you hunt, you know, everybody that's, uh, sure. you know, some guys are hunting super hard and some guys are hunting, you know, one day a week and killing two or three birds. So uh, according to the amount of exercise your dog's getting, in the wintertime and cold, you want to keep them healthy. You want to keep, and when I say healthy, I guess, I mean, I would rather have them a little on the heavier side, uh, more so than I would during training season when it's hot. So, uh, I, I don't, uh, not a large increase in the wintertime, but definitely a little increase in the wintertime for the duck hunting dogs is the way I, is the way I do it. All right. So I would hundred percent agree. I would say most of the time I feed once a day, Let's say I got some crap I got to deal with in the morning. I might feed in the morning and then, or like on Sundays, I'll feed in the morning on Sundays where they aren't getting work. They'll just get a little nibble in the morning, hold them over, air throughout the day, feed them at night. But during heavy training season where we're in the field by 7.15 working, I'm not feeding in the morning. I'm waiting till we're done and cooled off and relaxed and then i feed at night jimmy how many cups a day on the average dog are you feeding a day pretty much the standard here uh on my females are eating about three and a half cups and my males would average around five cups and of course according to the dog you know i've got some females eating two cups i've got some females eating five cups and then vice versa on the males i've got some eating seven or eight cups now i've kind of got a line anything over seven cups i will feed those dogs in the morning I, I would break it so if they needed say eight cups to to maintain their weight uh i seem like i have more trouble with my males and my females doing that uh i've got a couple right now so they'll get uh say two cups in the morning uh and then six cups in the evening it's because i don't like to feed more than about six to, or seven eight cups in one in one feeding yeah that is the way i do it so that that's a lot uh, well well it, don't take this judgy. I didn't, I'm not judging, um, but I agree with you. I think if you're feeding that amount in one sitting, then it would be better to break it up. So what you're doing is how I would do it. And I do have other dogs that like, you know, whether they're the ones that are just always anxious and ready to go or just burning the energy even when they're sleeping, I will feed those ones twice a day just because they need more calories. And no matter what you yeah. feed them, they're they're just struggling to keep weight on. Um, so I agree. I think the ones that need more, breaking it up so that their metabolism can process it and use it and 
what have you is is smart. So that's good. Um, yeah. I, now I I would rather take the dogs to the field on a, you know without feeding them. That's just been my preference. Uh, so if the dogs that I do feed in the morning, I would run them much later than the day. They would be on the end of my group. That's just the way I've always done it. And the reason being, so if people aren't picking up what we're putting down, there's a, a condition called bloat. And there's a scientific term, but Jimmy, do you know it? Uh, uh, yeah, gastro portion. Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I do. I know what it is, but I can't. I can't reply at this point. But yeah, yeah, and that's either. what we're all yeah. trying to to avoid. That's exactly. The key to this whole thing is whatever it takes. Don't don't have that happen. It, yeah. So the the layman's term is bloat, and basically or twisted stomach. Twisted stomach. I think he's right. I think it's like gastrointestinal tor intorsion or contorsion or something. Sounds like a gymnastics move, but um, basically the stomach will legit flip, and it cuts off circulation to the stomach, increases the amount of gases and crap in the stomach. Well, I guess not literal crap if you took that literally, but like gases and all the fluids and juices and whatever in the stomach, and it'll start to expand and cut off blood supply, and the dog will die relatively quickly. So, very painful manner. So from the time that we run a couple blinds, put them up, and get them out two or three hours later, that dog could be dead. So, you know, being very conscious of the timing of when you feed them is important. So if you, that like Jimmy, I would, now that you tell me all this, you are not the guy that feeds your dogs before a duck hunt, correct? No, absolutely. No, I, even, even throughout the winter, um, uh, my dogs eat in the evening. Uh, I, I've researched it as far as getting the most out of the feed, regardless what you feed. You know, that's not our argument here is what that food's better, whatever, but regardless what you feed, when the dog is resting, they actually digest it better. They get more nutrients out of it. So an evening feeding to me, just from my understanding of it, is better. So I, I don't feed a dog in the morning, even before duck hunting. I, it's just, it's kind of become my standard and bloat's a major issue with that. Right. But the I guess secondary to that is, from my understanding, is the dog gets they they get more out of the food if they eat it. You know, like at night when my dogs are fed and aired, now they're in, you know I call them putting them to bed. That's it. Nobody goes to the kennel. We don't bother them. They're resting. They've been working all day. I don't want them barking. I don't want them moving around over there. They're in there to you know if I've worked them like I like like we do and like I'm supposed to. They're over there quiet and they're resting and they're digesting their food. Tomorrow morning we get them out, we let them air, go to the bathroom, put them on the truck, and then we run all, virtually all day, you know, from virtually sun up till late in the evening. Absolutely. I agree yeah. with you. Um, all right. So I think we can put that one, that shot for shot to bed. Much like the dogs. Much like the dogs. Uh, <laughs> what you got. So the next question, um, we, uh, we've hit, well, We've talked about healing sticks quite a bit on the show, and so uh, no, so I'll caveat that we haven't. That's this, not how you use the word caveat. Or I'll add to that. I'll, I'll okay. cut Kevin off and tell him he's wrong because Uncle okay. Bob is right. We haven't. That's why the question came in. <laughs> Nothing and, like brotherly love. Yeah, I know we right, talked Jimmy. about healing sticks recently. <laughs> that's right. And we, I know. So the dude's question. So was the like, question was like, you "Oh, you guys have talked about healing sticks, but like, what is it? Right? How do you use it?" When would you use it? Right. So you we haven't really 
Jimmy, because I want you to answer this because I, I'm interested in every pro's different approach on steadiness and use or non-use of sticks. Um, yes. So recently we did talk about it and how I do use them, but some dogs I don't. Some dogs it's infrequent. It really depends on the situation. Um, and this gentleman heard us talking about healing sticks on the podcast and was like, never really heard about these. You know, I, I, I've listened to your podcast and, and you don't talk much about them. And quite frankly, I think healing sticks are like e-collars where there's negative connotations. They can be used improperly. I'd probably be one to say, hey, I've probably used it improperly, but 98% of the time I try my best to do it properly. Like, talk to us about healing sticks and, and give this guy an idea of what it's used for, how you use it, do you use it, and then I'll add whatever I got. Sure. Uh, I use it. Uh, I think it's a lot, like you said, it's a lot like the collar. Uh, it, there's got good use and bad use to it. One of the great, a great training tool if used properly, terrible if used wrong. Uh, I have a couple that's like what I use is a piece of half inch PEX pipe that somebody's put a golf club handle on them. Both of them's been gifts to me. I got a white one and a red one. Uh, every dog doesn't need it. Uh, it, it's not for like when we're in the field running. Uh, but I, I carry it most days especially when I'm standing with the dog, like doing what I call AKC style, where we're doing like master test work, I will carry it uh, to give corrections because we lean on that collar so much these days for so many different things, you know, from, uh, you know, force fetching to, uh, you know, corrections for sed and bad cast. And, you know, it's just constantly something on the collar. So I like to take a little off the collar and put a little more on the stick. So what I do with a young dog when they're in the, when they're in basics, and learning their obe- learning their obedience, uh, I will teach them heel and I teach them set. And I actually do a phase a stick set for about a week, and I, I like that. Meaning, at first, set and then tap with a stick. You know, just and not you know, not overdoing it. Just a nice tap with a sit. You know, with a stick and commanding sit. So it's like set, stick, and sit. And least a week straight and by the end of the week it's becoming a little more stick more a little more and what happens is that dog really starts reacting to that with an immediate set you're just getting that set um uh response to this part of it now i'm i'm pretty old school i still do stick fetch you know where we're on the walking fetch line We've done tests on walking fetch. When I get my dogs before I go to the collar, I will do stick uh, fetch and kind of push with the stick. I swing back in fetch to get them to get that impulsion to the bumper before I go to the collar. So my stick needs the collar to get that impulsion. Does that that making sense? It it makes sense to me, and uh, I think. I think some people who who may not know it might not, but I would say Google it. We won't digress even more into that, but Google it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's one of those. It can go very in depth, but the stick, like I say, 
first is using the collar constantly. So, like, when I'm steadying up the dogs, my dogs a long time. Uh, start off, put foot on the back of the tail, not hard on the collar. You know, I hold the puppy at first, and then I go to holding the collar with my foot on the tail, letting them watch marks on them steady. I'm going once the bird's on the ground. And we do that kind of a long period of time. Once I get that dog to the okay, today you're going to set lunch those marks without leaving. I, I stand over the dog with a stick, and I don't watch the mark. I watch the uh, Of course, it's been through this stick, stick set process where set means set with the stick. If he wants to move before I release him, I would just swat with a stick and command set. I always do is pick the bird up and repeat. Uh, that's where I use the stick probably more than anywhere else is at that point. And once they get really steady and understand that, at that point, it's not a whole lot of stick. Um, that, that's my, that's my, the way I use the stick here. And I, I use it a lot, but once they get to a certain level, I don't use a stick. It's usually just right there in that steadying process from basic obedience right up to, I guess, as they come out of transition, really start to steady. We use the stick, and then after that, it's pretty much done. Cool. I'm with you, I, and I think there are some dogs that need more stick, and there are some dogs that need little to no stick, and reading the situation and reading the dog is imperative, but... It's funny because it's called a healing stick, and I don't do much healing with it. Now, if a dog is is one of those dogs that constantly tries to heal in front of me, I might take the stick and swat them in the chest and back them up versus always being on the collar like Jimmy's saying. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's another tool in the tool belt. I, I don't overuse it. I don't underuse it. I, I debate this all the time with other people pros and I, I love hearing Jimmy's response because it, it, it's a different mentality right like there are some guys that I train with that are like nah I don't I haven't used a healing stick in five years it's in my truck I haven't touched it and it's like well cool bro but yeah. well now what like do we just take it out black and white or do we use it in you yeah. know what do we do and so I think for me, at least, Jimmy, it's it's per dog, per basis, and some dogs do better with it than the collar, and then some dogs do better with the collar than the stick, and then some dogs are average and just roll with all of this training utensils, and we can do it all. That, and that uh, is going to kind of get a little deep So doing the stuff that I agree with you a hundred percent. There's some dogs that just don't need it. You know, it's just that, you know, they're, te- you know, they're just naturally a little softer or whatever. And you can't, you know, you can't smack on them. Some of those big nails, but you could literally break it on them and they, they could care less. It means nothing to them, you know, like, whatever. Right. but where I, where I do have, have, I like of that once I do the, the stick set and then I do the, the stick set. Uh, when I say at the point when I move up into uh, uh, pattern blinds, if you get a dog, I call it Stevie Wonder, you know, that will not down. Sometimes, even though they're next to you, you can sit, you know, sit and then swat, you know, give the dog a stick a lot. Uh, I like that side of it because you'll have that occasionally, you know, especially when you have a whole crew going through, you'll get that dog that just won't focus or lock down. 
So instead of, you know, what's your reaction if you don't have the stick, you don't really, right. you know, step forward or whatever, stick the dog, maybe you get a lot of focus. I, I will use that. That's not, that's one of those, it's a, it's not every dog for sure, and it's probably not maybe more than one out of ten. It's there. Awesome. So uh, our, our next question here. Uh, was kind of wondering if you had any advice for people. You've done a lot of guiding over the years. Do you have any advice for people going on a guided hunt? I'm sure you've seen some good crews, some less than good crews. What do you got? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, man. That and I get that. That uh, I had a couple people today asking about, you know, book a trip. Do I know where to who to go with, and you know, different places. And uh, you know, I've, I've hunted from Topeka Bay to Washington State, South Texas, and all over the Mississippi flyway with guides, you know, self-guided or whatever. Uh, you know, that's one of those things. It's like, every, you know, it's like everything else. There's good ones and bad ones sure. and, and like everything else. So uh, finding a place that's recommended by somebody, you know, I think would be the key. Uh, finding out, talking to those people, uh, you know, researching it. Uh, because you spend a lot of money to do that. It, you know, a lot of people like, you know, that, you know, that are working people that want to spend some money and go duck hunting. Uh, it's a big event to get to go to Arkansas or to Missouri or wherever they're, you know, wherever they're thinking about going, Kansas or wherever. Uh, just, just, you know, I really recommend find, you know, doing your research. Uh, there's some outfitter programs out there that do some guarantees. Uh, I know when I was with Big Creek, Cabela's uh, booked a lot of hunts for us. And Cabela's deal was, a, was like the preferred outfitters program. And if you booked a hunt through them, uh, your satisfaction, I, it didn't have anything to do with the hunt because, you know, in Arkansas, we have good days and we have great days and then we have terrible days, you know, and it's everywhere in between. Sure. But you were for sure to get, you know, a good clean room, friendly service, good meals, everything that we said we would give you, you were guaranteed to get. So there's opportunity out there for that. Uh, usually the cost, like I know the cost to cost was the same. You didn't pay any more for booking through somebody like that that has done the work for you. Uh, if I was looking to go somewhere like that, I would be, that. that's where I would start. If it was somewhere totally different where nobody else I knew had been or I didn't have somebody to ask, uh, I would look through a outfitter service who has been there, you know, who knows what they're doing. And, uh, and, and really do some research because there, there are some there are some fantastic places that do really good work, and then there's some places that uh, they will be glad to take your money. Yeah. No. What, all right. Yeah. So this is my personal question for you: Where would you like to duck hunt next year that maybe you haven't been or you've been and you're like, yeah, I got to go back to this place? And let yeah, me know I'll what weekend you, my- you plan on going. I'll be free. Yeah. I'm available. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, and I'm I'm working on setting it up now. I, but I've been very blessed. I've killed most of the ducks in North America. I only like a few, having them all. And uh, Alaska is my my dream trip right now. I need the the king eider and the harlequin. So that's uh, I, I think we're looking. I got some guys looking. We're talking about 2021. Cool. Uh, if I, as far as wing shooting goes, the Matagorn Islands in in uh, South Texas, out on the um, out on the Gulf is, is pretty amazing. If you can find an outfitter that's got an airboat that can get you out into the islands, the pintail numbers are just phenomenal. The redheads are just unbelievable. 
uh, teal, model ducks. You can get a huge variety of ducks in, in a really cool part of the country. It's not overwhelmed, or it wasn't at the time I was there. It's been a few years, but I really, as far as just overall wing shooting, is pretty good. And I'm I'm addicted to hunting in the woods in Arkansas. You know, timber hunting, most people. But I, that's my addiction. But now, as far as just shooting ducks, those Matagorn Islands in South Texas would be another trip someday. I want to do that again. I w- that's a bucket lister for me too, buddy. And I actually, I've never even done an Arkansas timber hunt. It's oh wow. Yeah, you'll have no. to come down. You have to you have to come down and go with me this year. Hopefully, we'll get some birds. You know, the last couple of years have been kind of hit and miss. Uh, three years ago, we had a phenomenal season. Best year we I'd ever had down there, and then the last two years have uh, just been very marginal. We killed a few birds, but not great. Uh, we're hoping weather will get right and get us back on some really good birds. If that works out, you guys will have to come down and go with me. Oh, we'd love it. We'd love it. We'll do one yes, uh, a podcast live. Yeah, there we go. Also looking at doing a trip out to Alaska, so don't uh, (laughs) don't count us out on that one. Yeah, Yeah, we didn't get the invite on that one, but you know, don't count us out. All right, we got. I mean, look, you're welcome to come. I'm sure we got one more for you, buddy. Uh, So we we talked a little bit. We actually talked a lot about about uh, pressuring dogs using different types of pressure, Um, and we had somebody write in who actually sent a video to Bob, so maybe he can weigh in on this too. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let me just jump in. Sorry to cut you off, Kev. So, Do you want me to read the question? No, I'll explain it to Jimmy. Fair enough. So this guy, he sent me a text ma- or uh, Instagram message and said, I'm collar conditioning my dog to hear and place and sit and whatever. And then he sent me the video, which saved me. Because the 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 way he put it was like, yeah, sounds good, man. You know, keep it up. But the video, you know, within a week of starting collar conditioning, he was forcing the dog to sit, then forcing the dog to place, and then placing the dog on another place by force. So the dog's getting pressure to pressure to pressure to pressure all in one session on all mildly new commands that the dog's learning. And so, I mean, I guess... You know, for me, how, I'll answer it first, and then you can parlay and add into it. Um, how I explained it to him over Instagram is, if I'm collar conditioning a dog, I start with here, and then I do sit and heal, and they're all different sessions. So when I'm doing stuff that the dog is learning, I mean, I, I've already taught them the commands, and then I overlay what they've learned through the collar. But then when I add that collar, I'm simplifying. I'm doing heel work and doing collar work with heel. I'm doing here work and just working on here with the collar. If I do sit, I'm just doing sit with a collar. I'm not at first adding all these commands all at once, all with a collar. And so what he was noticing with his dog is the dog's attitude was going down. So that was the other question that he asked was like, how do I keep the the attitude up while doing all this collar conditioning. And then he sent me the video. I'm like, well, there you go. The dog's kind of confused because she's getting shocked for this, getting shocked for that, getting shocked for this, getting shocked for that. And so how I do it is just one at a time. And then as the dog gets it, then you can start adding in more things like here and heel and heel and sit or place and down or whatever you want to do. But, to me, he added 
it went from having his appetizer to having the whole smorgasbord. That's right. So yeah. I don't know how, you know, do you have a command that you start collar conditioning with? And then would you add or subtract anything that I said? No, no a little bit of difference that I do saying where I kind of do it an old school way is I take my dogs in the walking fetch. Once they're going is the first time I use the collar is the fetch. Oh, really? That's the first, first command after they broke over, meaning they're fetching without pressure onto the ground. I'll do a few days of, of stick fetch and then I'll give them fetch, Nick fetch. That's the first time they ever, you know, on light pressure and get them bolting. Now, I, I do, uh, low, uh, uh uh, momentary. I don't do continuous. I don't hold, you know, uh, I, I do all momentary, uh, command, Nick command. Uh, I do force first. Uh, and I try, so if the dog comes to me and will come to me, meaning like the dog gets here and will come to me, I, I try not to call a condition here first. Some dogs are just so bad about learning, you know, they've, right. they've done learn the game that to do anything with them before I can do anything, I got to call it from to here. And that's just a given. Now that's as a pro at home. You know, if it was my, just my personal dog, the way I would do it is take a two force fetch, do the fetch first. And then I do set first and I will call a condition set for a couple of days and doing the momentary, I'll move it up pretty quick to a little higher level to the point the dog will sit like, and when I say sit, now they're locking, you know, they don't want to heal because they don't want to come, up to that pressure right and at that point then i will start pulling them with the rope here nick here and i'll do that separate usually about two to three days each and then on the sixth or seventh day i will you know what i call blend the two together here set nick here nick set nick and that's the, the collar condition that i do gotcha that's so what, it is that, a little different to me yeah 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 so i you know, I've always said there's more than one way to skin that cat. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that's just the way I was taught to do it. And uh, it, it seems to make sense. I think I think as long as you do one thing at a time on the collar, now once, you know, and then you, you then blend it once they have a clear understanding of it, I don't think it would make a difference if you done here first and then sit. Exactly. Or if you done fetch, you know, like after all that, I think it would be fine. Uh, but I definitely think doing – each individual one for a day or two or uh, say two or three days uh, usually is, is enough on the average side. Cause I've done done, you know, so much obedience with them every morning prior to doing what we're doing. They, they have a very clear understanding of what set is. So it's a super fair, uh, I wouldn't say correction cause it's, you know, time to condition cause they know what set means. I mean, right. it's like no question or none. So set Nick, all I'm asking for is to get that impulsion to set faster or fetch, they just come off the table, they're fetching off the ground, fetch, Nick, fetch. It's a fair time to force them, you know, with that collar uh, to get to build that impulsion just a little bit more. Uh, and then once I once I do the two and blend them together, that's when I start forcing the pile. So it all kind of just works its way in there. Now, as far as forcing the play, uh, you know, there's that time where the debolting, you know, and people don't talk about that much anymore. I don't know. You know, mine usually hit a debulking stage around uh, sometime in the T, you know, because I'm starting to put a lot of responsibility on them uh, from the T, and they'll bolt to the truck. And, then, you know, they used to do a debolting stage, you know, where you would allow the dog to jump in the truck and then correct the dog with the collar to bring him back to him. 
Right. I used to be a little rougher with that. I, I get it, some bolting still, but, uh, you know, I just nick here, nick here, nick here. And if they understand, I can just get them back away from the truck. Usually once or twice they'll do that, and then the bolting side is done. Right. But as far as to kennel with it or to place with it, I, I don't do I don't do that. I haven't done that. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I just I don't do it. Mine kind of gets that part of it. I'm I guess there's just so much repetition of it. No, yeah, I'm with you. I I I do it on the dogs who are so stubborn that even treats they don't really care to place whenever I tell them. So you know. Yeah. It just depends on the dog, but I think to answer this guy's question after your answer and my answer, it would be he was was doing too many commands with the collar all at once during a learning stage. He should break it down into each command, make sure each command is thoroughly understood by that dog, and then start overlaying or blending those commands together. Um, and that'll keep the attitude up and understanding I, up. I agree a hundred percent. I think, you know, and, and even during my side, I'll do fun bumpers, you know, like beginning and end, you know, just yep. to keep them, keep them going. You know, the last thing we want to do is take it out of them. We want to put it in, you know, but you got to get it in there because we're going to use that thing. We want a very clear understanding of it, but you want to, you want to keep them going. So, uh, you know, I, 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 even some of them, if they get too down, I'll stop. And hey, 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 you know, throw them a couple of fun bumpers, get them all jacked up again, boom, and do it a couple more times, throw them a couple of fun bumpers and put them up. Agreed. But I'll do that one. I totally agree. One thing at a time on stuff they totally know, you know, is there's, there's no learning in that collar at all. All it does is gets the dog to uh, execute the command crisper and faster. Agreed. You know, or more consistent. Yep. Agreed. Well, Jimmy. Yep. I want to thank you for coming on our show, man. I think we knocked out of the park, buddy. You are a stud muffin podcaster. <laughs> man, I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. I've, I've listened to you. You know, like we were talking about, I'm new to, to listening to podcasts. Uh, my buddy Adam Campbell got me into this stuff, and he told me you were one I need to listen to, and, and I've enjoyed it. I, I'm, I'm actually really getting into it. enjoy listening to you guys. You and Kevin do a great job, man, and thanks for having me. I've, I've Truly had a good time. Time has flown by. I can't believe it's been this long already. I know, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to hang out with you at the next hunt test. Good luck to you and your dogs uh, throughout the rest of the summer. And until next time, guys, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Before we go, though, Jimmy, tell everybody where they can find you uh, on Instagram, Facebook, website, all that jazz. Yeah, it's uh, Jimmy uh, Mallard Run Kennels. It's Mallard Run Kennels on Instagram and Facebook. Jimmy Rogers on Facebook. Don't have a website. Uh, Jimmy at MallardRunKennels.com is my, my uh, email address. If you got any questions or whatever, or message me on Facebook. I'm glad to help anybody anytime. People come and train with me all the time. If people have got questions, feel free anytime. I, I enjoy dog training and every, every aspect of it. So, yep. Thank you, buddy. You can find me there. Thank You're you, You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, cheers. Hey, join our community. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our YouTube, if you enjoy Instagram, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer. Join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. The link is in the description. Click that link. Join the community. We've got tons of great videos, tons of great content, and you can ask me more questions. So join it. Enjoy it. We did it for you, and you're helping us produce this show so thank you so much to that community get in get out let's roll
patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.